It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining me on the show right now is author of the new book, New Women in the Old West, From Settlers to Suffragists, An Untold American Story, Winifred Gallagher. Winifred, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Morning. Um, so how did this come about? I mean, what is it about um, this aspect of American history that we don't know? Because I feel like settlement um, and sort of people. Show, so let, let me just sort of even make it even more plain. People showing up to land that's not theirs and sort of saying, I'm going to live here now. <laughs> and then sort of cutting it up and, and putting borders around it and. Um, we now call that real estate. Um, but the idea of settlement is something that it goes all the way back to America's founding. That's sort of what we settler colonialism is, is, is our thing. Um, but how do these women that were settling and migrating out West, how do they fit into that larger story? Well, I found that there were two big myths about the American West. And one of them, the first, is the, the myth that it's the men who settled the West. You know, the heroic guy saddles up and heads into the sunset by himself. In fact, women were equally essential to developing that huge territory beyond the Mississippi River. And they were not just the stereotypical pioneer wives and gold rush hookers who just helped the men. They were also single homesteaders and college girls and shop owners and women's rights activists and, and women of color and gay women. Uh, the other big shock to me when I began the research was that the suffrage movement and Western expansion happened at the same time. Of course, we know that, but we study those things on separate parallel tracks. And when you realize that they actually are converging tracks, that puts a whole different tilt on the story. So that some of those same women who were build, building homes and communities from scratch in the middle of nowhere helped actually help lead the human rights revolution that gave half of Americans the vote with the 19th Amendment. These suffragists were not just traditional white ladies that you see in pictures in their Victorian mm -hmm. outfits. They were also Native Americans, Hispanics, African Americans, and Asian American women. Many were, as I mentioned before, single, divorced, or gay. So that when, when in 1920, when women were enfranchised nationwide, women in the most Western states could already vote. Some of them had voted for decades. No one knows this. Indeed, in 1916, when, when before the 19th, four years before the 19th Amendment, Montana's Jeanette Rankin was already the first U.S. Congresswoman. Wow, I don't, I didn't, I don't know that I knew how that all connected together. Do you know what right. I mean? Like I may, I may have heard her name and the date, but I didn't connect that together in how that works and how it fits um, together through both. In terms of the the women that were settling out west, I mean, how did they first decide? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna create a business. We're going to 
um, not just settle here, but build something. I mean, were they, I'm assuming no one gave them permission to do that. <laughs> Can you talk no. about who, who no. some of these women were and, and just their backgrounds? Because I think it's fascinating to think that they're doing something unprecedented. You know, I, I want to know who these people are. How did they come up with um, sort of the ideas and, and the intention to build as opposed to, I don't know, just live their lives as, as quote unquote women in that era? <laughs> well, to start right there, uh, if you just to uh, give some basics on what it was like for women to live their lives in the mid 19th century America, their position in society was terrible. Women's place was only in the home. They were second-class citizens who had very few legal rights or opportunities. They had no role in civic life, much less the vote. For respectable women, marriage was the only career. They could not own property to get a divorce or even have custody of their own children. They were considered inferior to men in everything except they were supposed to be more virtuous, naturally more virtuous, which gave them a kind of moral authority, but no political authority. So how was that different in the West? To speak to your question. It was starting with statistics. Most of the colonists, of course, early on were white. So in, in the West, white men significantly outnumbered white women there, particularly in the mining towns, which made women and their work much more valued. One of my favorite stories, one wife was shocked when a miner offered her $5 for a hot breakfast. That's about $168 today. And she noted that he would have paid her $10 if she had asked. So women also had their pick of suitors and unhappy wives uh, got very easily uh, left uh, their unsuitable husbands and, and turned the West, and the West had the America's first divorce mills. Um, women also benefited from the West's simpler, more experimental settler society. Every pair of hands was needed to get the work done. So no one really particularly cared whether it was allegedly man's work or women's work in an mm -hmm. emergency. So that flexibility enabled women to become more equal by acting more like equals. Uh, it, uh, as in most of America today, it took two economic providers to support a family. Uh, and in new communities, town mothers organized the first churches, schools, and charities, not town fathers. So these women were not yet considered equal to men, but they had certainly narrowed that gap. It's so fascinating to hear all of this because I feel like for a lot of folks listening this morning, this is probably all new. Um, and I think I've heard pieces of this because um, one of my former roommates was a historian um, and her book is about migration. <laughs> um, so I just I know more about um, the migration to the West um, and the Midwest in American history than maybe most people just because of proximity to a to a, someone who got a PhD in that. Um, but I think that even some of the things you're saying are new to me um, in terms of the political power, because obviously if you're outnumbering um, the women in a way, you would, I guess, assume um, up front that that puts women at a disadvantage. But you just explained how they utilize that to their advantage. Um, in terms of the political power they were able to build, did that come from the fact that they were um, almost like indisposable members of the, of that Western, those Western societies that were being built 
because without those women doing all of these things, you know, the society couldn't function. And then they they saw that and were like, oh, this is this is actually power we can we can try to cultivate and use. Absolutely. As you point out, they they women had considerable soft economic power. The the a man could not homestead. A man could not really get ahead in the West unless he had a wife. There was a famous saying, a man in a mountain a man in the mountains cannot keep his wife. So women were were really uh, co-providers for families. So that gave them a lot of status. Back east, men were most men were now starting to work in factories and office buildings, and their salaries were supporting women who were kind of at home. Uh, suddenly just doing a lot of housework and childcare and trying to uh, you know, make a lot, uh, make a, a stand on, on the importance of that work, which it was important, but it was not economic contributions. But in the West, uh, women were not only co-providers for the family, but the federal government also gave them some special advantages in the West. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln and, the, and his Republicans passed the Homestead Act, which enabled female as well as male heads of households to claim free land, 160 acres of free land. That was an unprecedented economic advantage uh, towards equality for women. Some of them became independent farmers, but many others developed their homestead and then flipped them, as we would say today, and plowed their profits into their next step up in the world, whether it's to get more education or open a little business or buy a sewing machine and, and uh, have a little nest egg of their own before they married. Um, secondly, the, that very same year of 1862, the Morrill Land Grant Act created 67 tuition-free public colleges in the West. That was amazing. And most of them were co-educational. These were some of the oh. first co-educational colleges in the world. So given suddenly women had a career alternative to marriage and many of those graduates became teachers. Others like uh, uh, arguably the the West's first women women doctor, Bethenia Owens Adair, graduated from medical school at the age of 40. Almost 15% of Western women entered traditionally male professions such as medicine and the law compared to the national rate of 8%. So that kind of economic power gave them, you know, the foundation for their political power, which depended on extending their moral authority, their their greater, supposedly greater uh, uh, virtue from, from their homes into the homeland itself. They moved from community building in their, in their local environments into large-scale social reform. Many of, of all races joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union. We think of that as like sort of uh, prune-faced fuddy-duddies, but what (laughs) began as a a campaign against drunkenness and vice became the large, it's still the largest women's organization in American history. It embraced suffrage and a do-everything reform agenda that fought for public sanitation, child labor laws, Food and drug regulation and the rehabilitation of prostitutes. And the, this was a, I mean, it was the WCTU was a much bigger movement than than the suffrage movement, and very few people know about it today. By the 1890s, women made the West the capital of the new progressive politics, which kind of swept the nation, especially the West and the South. 
and and they championed economic justice for average people as well as women's rights against the gilded ages new one percent and so these progressive women also shaped the laws of the new states that were had to write constitutions to become states and they made sure that the, that those constitutions had more gender neutral wording uh, one of my favorites is the kansas homesteader who became a lawyer and a suffragist and a famous orator, nationally famous orator, Mary Elizabeth Lease. She held audiences spellbound for hours. And although as a woman, she couldn't even vote herself. She was the co-founder of the People's Party, also known as the Populist, which remains the largest third party in American history. It's so cool to learn history that you didn't know before. Um, yeah, especially, I felt, uh, when, I, I, you I know, you're insane. like, yeah, the reason I wrote the book, yeah. I, I yeah. was living half time in Wyoming and I, I was just so knocked out by the local women. Our, our mayor was an 80 year old woman. Uh, the pastor of the community church was an African-American woman who also ran the local search and rescue operation in the mountains. And they just kind of ran everything. And I, I found out that they were carrying on a long tradition of this kind of achievement and independence and civic involvement that was all rooted in this old west era it's so cool i mean everybody thinks about you know the the wild wild west and they think of a cowboy in a cowboy hat on a horse you know going into the sunset as you you said in the in the, in, in the top of our conversation um and this is totally upends that who knew there were like women lawyers and congress people out west this whole time, I had no, we had no idea. Um, one of the other things that I think is cool as well is that in the book, you're, you're not just talking about um, white women. You're talking about black women, indigenous women, um, uh, Latinx women, Latino women who are um, all doing these things that are more independent, you know, setting themselves up. I mean, how are they able to do that? Because... Again, this is not a time in which, as a black woman, you're supposed to be able to do any of these things. Yeah. Well, it's really two different groups. The, the um, Hispanic and uh, Native American women, of course, it was, they were colonized. But it's interesting that, that the um, black and Asian uh, women who came in were, were also colonizers along with the, the white women. So that's a kind of an interesting uh, little point that bears uh, noting, I think. Um, for, for many women of color, the, the um, colonization era, for them, activism, political activism really meant family survival, keeping their families alive. That was, that was a political act amid, right. uh, amid the, the racism and uh, the, the white folks who went west brought all their prejudices with them, by and large. And uh, so even for the, for the Asian and uh, black women who arrived in the west, they still, they weren't like escaping uh, racism. I mean, it was better than in the south, but it was still, still a difficult environment for all women of color. So just keeping themselves and their, and their kids alive was really, that was their first political act. But really heroically, um, later in the century, suffragists of color, I'm thinking here of like Nebraska's Dr. Susan LaFleche Picote, uh, America's first Native American physician, um, Hattie Redman of Oregon. She was, a, she was a janitor at the U.S. court, but mm -hmm. 
but she was also the president of Portland's Colored Women's Equal Suffrage Association. She was a, an amazing woman. Uh, her her, her uh, papers and documents are now like a real treasure trove for historians. Uh, they began, these women of color began to argue that their oppressed peoples needed the vote to counter racist policies, not so that they wanted the vote as women. They too were of course women and, and, and wanted to, um, you know, overthrow misogyny. But for them, they knew, they knew that for, for their peoples to get any justice, they needed more voices. They needed more people casting ballots. So they had a, they had a different, more complicated argument for becoming suffragists. I mean, it's like the the early under it's a very early understanding of intersectionality, <laughs> and, and yeah. you know the sort of the the, the famous quote um, from Shirley Chisholm, which I'm not going to try to quote, but paraphrasing basically that you know I have more on a day to day the fact that I'm black makes it a little bit harder, or the fact that I'm a woman makes it harder than the fact that I'm black. Um, but I think it's both. It's always been both. And understanding, you know, like I, at any given moment, I don't know if people are treating me differently because I'm a woman or because I'm black or both. I'm not sure. Um, it's never, yeah. you know, it's it, we're never able to be like, are you are you treating are you talking down to me in that patronizing tone because I'm a woman or because I'm black or because both? Like, I just want to know, you know, we never get to have that conversation. Um, but it, it's so fascinating to hear about the the early understanding of, of activists then that especially black women and, and women of color who understood that there was, there are multiple, um, you know, s systems of oppression that they were experiencing, not just their gender, but also their race. Um, and that they saw voting and political power as a pathway to change that reality. That feels very modern. <laughs> that also, that feels like that's a lesson we could heed today. Um, can you talk about how, how, what is it that they came to that being the solution in, in the 19th century, in, in the early 20th century? I mean, how do they arrive at the fact that political power is a pathway to liberation or is one, is one pathway? Well, the really, uh, the basic point here is that women's suffrage was a started out as a black idea. It w suffrage was really born. The first suffragists, the famous old ladies yep. that we see now in their in their corsets and everything, they were ab they were abolitionists mm -hmm. first. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, these women, they were they were passionate abolitionists, and uh, they they saw the the by looking at at what race did to people. They began to see parallels in the way gender oppressed them in their own marriages, in their own societies. And they became, they took up the cry of black abolitionists, which was for universal suffrage. In other words, a human being had the right to vote regardless of gender, race, creed, ethnicity, whatever. So women's suffrage began as universal suffrage, which mm -hmm. was a, started in black abolitionist groups in the 1830s. White women started publicizing it in the uh, 1840s and 50s, but it really began there in that movement. So black people already had a sense because of their race that it right. was wrong 
not to be able to vote if you were an American. So they had an inherent, the, the black women suffragists, that was not a, a big leap for them because they were already disenfranchised because of their race. So I think they started in a, in a funny way in a more advantaged position than white suffragists. So you see someone like Elizabeth Ensley, who's a, a wonderful character. Um, her parents, she, she was born in, in New England. Her parents were uh, uh, freed people uh, and they were not terribly well-educated themselves, but they made sure she had a humdinger of an education. She even had a European tour. She came back to, I think it was Boston and uh, started a public library, taught school, um, married a, um, a college graduate, um, Mr. Ensley, uh, who they went, left New England, taught taught at uh, Howard University in the normal school, which is how to how, where teachers learned how to teach. They then migrated, picked up from Washington and migrated to Colorado, which like uh, Kansas and California was known to be a more liberal minded state. Um, she got to Colorado and she started um, the the she was the vice president of what was essentially initially a white ladies, uh, the leading white ladies suffrage group. Um, and her, the, the theme was everyone's equal, everyone's equal. And she, she had such strong organizational uh, abilities. I mean, she was so much better educated than most people, including the white ladies that they made her an officer of the club. And she uh, was an instrumental in having Colorado, um, pass uh, uh, women's suffrage, and then went on to work with uh, groups of, of different, uh, across racial barriers throughout Colorado. As soon as she, as soon as women got the vote, she started going around and telling, first she made sure that black men who could vote in Colorado did vote for women's suffrage. And then she, when, once women were enfranchised, she made it her business to make sure that they were they were electing men because because women were much less likely to be elected at that point, electing men to Congress and in positions of authority so that they could pass uh, anti-racist legislation. So she was really like a very admirable woman. Her picture is in the book. I love that story so much, and it's it's so cool to hear because it's like um, when we were having that debate last summer about. Uh, or I guess it was a couple years ago, but it obviously um, popped up again last summer during the racial reckoning, um, you know, Confederate statues. And I just keep listening to the story and I'm like, why are there not statues of these women? These women deserve statues. (laughs) They changed the world around them in a, in a moment where, I I mean, I just can't imagine being in that, in that moment, like being alive in that period of time, and still having sort of the confidence to say, this status quo is not okay. I'm going to go outside One of the things that really, really annoys Western women historians um, is the fact that all over the West, there are statues of the men who won the West. And that, you know, it says John Jones or Jake Smith or whatever. And they're all the women's statues are, it's it's the generic pioneer woman it's it's a white lady in a poke bonnet and a long dress who looks like she's half starving to death holding a baby (laughs) and she's never has a name (laughs) right can't bother giving her a name well i'm glad we learned the name elizabeth ensley because um you know i can't i mean there's names um 
today that you've said and described that I had not heard before. Um, and so that's always fun for me. In terms of, we only have a couple more minutes left. Um, we have one minute left. Man, this show is going so fast. Every segment, I'm like, 10 more questions and out of time. Um, what's, what's just, in the last minute, why should people um, read this book? I mean, I think that you've given them 20 minutes of reasons um, because it, this conversation has been so fascinating. But what what do you think people will get out of it that is something unexpected? I think the one big one is the fact that the 19th Amendment that enfran- finally enfranchised American women enfranchised half of the American population. And we just brush it away as if that didn't make a big dent. One half of America could not vote. And in 1920, they were able to vote. And Western women really led that charge. Women voted in Wyoming in 1869. So Let's let's give a hurrah for the suffragists. They're not just old Victorian ladies whose work doesn't matter anymore. And the West is not just flyover country that that mm-hmm. didn't, because it didn't have founding fathers and the Revolutionary War doesn't matter. That's such a good point. I I, yeah. I, I real I, you know like I I don't think that point is made enough. We really don't. No, it's I not. Mean, we we talk about the founding fathers like America. The whole country was founded by four guys. Like we really do that a lot, and I don't really understand why because it feels like there are more people and more stories that we should be reading, yeah. including no the ones including the ones in your book. Um, and I'm I'm so incredibly uh, grateful to you, Winifred Gallagher, for. For writing this and and for sharing this history with us because this is super super cool and i'm i'm just i'm i'm glad this exists in the world new women in the old west from settlers to suffragists an untold american story and if i don't think if this if this interview can't didn't convince you to buy this book and learn this history i don't know what will what will um because this is so fascinating um thank you so much for being here such a great great um book and uh, people are really going to get a lot of out of it. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.